0: Our last speaker this afternoon, Christine Cusera, is a physician assistant with Dermatology Center of Frisco, like right around the corner here. She is clinically involved with evaluation, diagnosis, and treatment of general dermatologic patients, as well as diagnosis, monitoring, and therapy of individuals with skin cancer and psoriasis. Ms. Cusera attended the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, where she graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Physician Assistant Studies, and completed her Master of Science degree through the University of Nebraska Medical Center where she specialized in dermatology. Her doctorate of health science degree was awarded in mid-2006 at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She is a member of the American Academy of Physician Assistants, Texas Academy of Physician Assistants, and is the immediate past president of this very organization, the Society of Dermatology Physician Assistants. I'd like you to give a big round of applause to a good friend of mine, Ms. Christine Cusera. Thank you, John. He should be a radio announcer or something, shouldn't he? I love that voice. Okay, so thanks for hanging in there. It's been a long day, last lecture. Um, I think it's important in the age of biologics that we continue to revisit and look at the traditional systemic therapies, how to use them, how to monitor them. We don't want to forget about them. They have their place. Um, they work very well in psoriasis. They've been around a long time. They have a very long track record. Um, so, of course, in my office, we treat a lot of psoriasis. We use a ton of biologics, but we also use a lot of the traditional systemic, systemic therapies, monotherapy, as well as combining them with the biologic therapies. OK, so just kind of to review psoriasis, remember it's a chronic immune disorder. Um, there has been a, um, a, a large number of the population that has psoriasis worldwide. Uh, psoriasis patients have moderate to severe disease, which means that um, the majority of these patients should not be just treated with topical therapies only. You really got to dive in. You got to be aggressive. You got to treat them with systemic therapy. Um, Psoriatic arthritis is a big thing you need to check for in your psoriasis patients, and um, unfortunately, time after time, we've done uh, studies on quality of life, what patients think about their treatment, and time and time again, patients are not satisfied with treatment and don't think their treatment is aggressive enough, so we've got to really, really dive into this psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis treatment. The other thing that's kind of been a hot topic these days is the increase of Comorbid conditions in psoriasis patients. Um, lots and lots of studies are out there now showing that patients that have psoriasis have an increased risk of things like diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, um, high blood pressure, things like that. So not only is all this inflammation in the body um, being you know, seen on the skin, the joints are inflaming, we think that that inflammation is actually wreaking havoc on the internal organs as well. Okay, remember it's a complex disease. Genetic loci have been identified. We, uh, you have to tell your patients that and the first thing they're gonna tell you is it can't be genetic, nobody in my family has it. But you just have to remind them that a lot of times you can be a gene carrier and it may not actually come out on your skin. Um, Or once again, you know, grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, you probably have never examined every single bit of their skin and they just may have dandruff and never tell anybody. So you have to explain to them it is a genetic disease because everybody wants to know where it came from and why they have it. Um, This is kind of some things that happen when you have uh, psoriasis. We know that it's an inflammatory cascade. uh, Starts with everything um, being turned on uh, by some sort of stimulus. Unfortunately, we can't identify all the stimulus if we knew what all the stimulus was and why that that gene gets flipped on and everything gets flipped on, we could have a cure and we could turn it all off. And just kind of uh, what's happening under the skin, just the immunology of psoriasis there. Okay, so when you first see a psoriasis patient, it's very, very important to do a thorough medical history. Now with all the comorbidities that are coming out in all the studies, you really need to do much more than just look at your patient's skin, examine their joints. You gotta go down the whole road with them of, you know, what medications they're on, are they, Are they? A, do they have diabetes, do they have a history of high blood pressure? You have to go through everything with them now. And what we do is we actually have our patients see their primary care doctor for a physical every year if they have psoriasis. Um, you know, as a, Provider if you can treat someone's psoriasis and get it clear, they think you're amazing and then they want you to treat everything Oh, well, can you write me my high blood pressure medication? Can you write me my liver medication? Can you write me my cholesterol medication? No, we're not going to do that. You need to see Somebody and you need to get a physical every year and what's really cool now is the National Psoriasis Foundation is actually going out and actually trying to educate primary care PAs and nurse practitioners, on the comorbidities of psoriasis. So when you send a patient to the primary care doctor for a a physical that has psoriasis, they'll know what to look for and what kind of guidelines they need to use. And we'll go over those guidelines a little bit later. So remember, medication history is very important. Medications that can exacerbate psoriasis have a list here. It's important to know these because some are blood pressure medications, so if a patient is going to need treatment for blood pressure, you certainly don't want them to be on something that's going to exacerbate their psoriasis. So why is it important for us to recognize comorbidities? It's because, it's, first of all, it's good patient care. Okay, We have to remember that we were trained to do overall medical care. And then we, as dermatology providers, may be the front line. We may be the only doctor or or PA that they have seen in years. Um, I have many patients come in, and if you ask them about, you know, do you have high blood pressure? Well, yeah, but I haven't taken my medicine in two years, never seen anybody. So it's important to talk to them about that. And then also when you select therapy. You never wanna make a comorbid condition worse. If they have liver disease, you certainly don't wanna give them anything that's gonna harm their liver. So you gotta have a good background of all information on your patients. So this is kinda just a little bit about the data that's coming out. Um, There is support of the existence of comorbidities in psoriasis patients. And it can be associated with psoriatic arthritis, an increase of cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, cancer, lots and lots of things. The link between the skin changes and the comorbidities have not been clearly established, but the effects of the psoriasis treatment on these conditions remains unclear as well. But there is actually some uh, studies coming out now that if you'll read in some of the uh, I believe the most recent journal I saw was Hypertension actually has a study in it that shows that some patients that are taking treatment with TNF-alpha inhibitors, actually the, um, the vascular walls, the inflammation is decreasing in vascular walls. So all this stuff is really interesting. So be aware of these potential associations and, and screen your patients, monitor your patients, and get them to the appropriate people that they need to be to, to be treated for these comorbid conditions. And this is a lot on this slide, I know, but this is just kind of the relationship that's hypothetical that why people are thinking that all these comorbidities and psoriasis are being linked together. And basically it's all stemming from the systemic inflammation that psoriasis causes. Um, All that systemic inflammation is pretty much just doing everything it can possibly do internally Um, on your your vessels, your liver. Um, We know now that psoriasis patients have a high incidence of fatty liver. Um, We also know that obesity is very common in our psoriasis patients. And for a while we thought, well, you know what, our psoriasis patients are depressed and they have psoriasis all over them and they don't want to get out, they sit at home, They, they don't do a lot, so that's why they're overweight. Well we know now that the inflammation that's actually in the body being produced by all these cells, is actually going to the adipose tissue, the fatty cells, and swelling that. So a lot of times these patients can't help but be obese. So a lot, a lot of good studies being done, lots of information coming out. So try to keep up with all the new stuff that's coming out on this. So new recommendations regarding psoriasis comorbidities and monitoring. The National Psoriasis Foundation has a statement out that says, approach your psoriasis patient as a multisystemic disorder. Alert patients to the potentially negative effects of psoriasis as it relates to other aspects of their life. And then the American Journal of Cardiology has an editor's consensus out that actually said that... uh, Patients with moderate to severe psoriasis have a a medical history of cardiovascular disease. Um, They should get a annual physical exam and blood pressure check, and their blood lipids and glucose measurements should be checked as well. So this is the American Journal of Cardiology that came out with these standards. And then this is the standards that were actually adopted by the National Psoriasis Foundation, and it goes in conjunction with the American Heart Association. So this is kind of the the screening, recommended targets, recommended frequency of things that need to be checked on patients that have psoriasis. Okay, so take a thorough psoriasis history, look at where your psoriasis is, type of psoriasis, how bad it is, previous therapies if they worked, um, current therapies, and if they have joint disease. Remember, it's very important to look at your patient's joints, ask them about stiffness in the morning, ask them about joint disease, and we get every one of our psoriasis patients in a gown. Even if they say, I just have it on my elbows and knees, we look at their fingers, we look at their toes, we look at their um, Achilles tendons to make sure they don't have any enthesitis, so you really do need to look at these things. We all know there's five types of psoriasis, and treatment depends on a few things. How severe their disease is, their overall medical status, are they healthy, or do they have some sort of you know, immunosuppressant disease? Do they have HIV? Do they have hepatitis? I mean, there's a lot of things you have to look at. Patient-desired outcome. There's a lot of patients who really don't want their psoriasis treated. So you know, some people may have, you know five, six percent and they don't care. Um, side effects, you have to go over side effects with patients, lifestyle implications. You know, if a patient cannot get to your office three times a week and they they can't afford it, then certainly don't prescribe them ultraviolet therapy where they have to drive in all the time. And then quality of life is big. So quality of life, just a couple slides on that. Psoriasis has a huge impact on quality of life, we know. Psoriasis can have a major impact on patients' daily life such as using their hands, walking, sitting, standing, things like that. Our patients who come in our office all get a quality of life questionnaire to fill out. Um, first of all, that helps us understand them a little bit better and how their disease affects them. But also, you can use that information when you're trying to get things approved through the, psorias- through the, the companies, insurance companies, um, especially with biologics and things like that. There's usually a place that you can put, how does the psoriasis affect their daily life? So it's important to know that about your patient. Quality of life, this is the most recent NPF survey that was done, 2009. People are, of course, we know are self conscious, embarrassed. It's, they think it's disfiguring, you know, alters their choice of clothing. Patients complain of itching, irritation, pain. And a lot of people say it's a very large problem in their everyday life. This was kind of the traditional treatment process that we used to use, kind of the stair step therapy. Um, We don't tend to use this so much anymore, but I just kind of wanted to throw it in just to show you how, like when I first started practicing dermatology many years ago, we didn't have the biologics, and this is kind of the therapy that we used. Well, now we know that systemic therapy and and biologics can actually be a first-line treatment. So if you see a patient who's a candidate for treatment, you can go for it. You don't have to start with the, the topicals and then go to phototherapy and then go to the systemics. All right, so let's talk about the three big ones that are used every day in our practice. Um, We're going to talk about psoriatain or acetretin. We're going to talk about methotrexate, and we're also going to talk about cyclosporine. So psoriatain is a synthetic retinoid. Um, It modulates epidermal proliferation and differentiation. It has anti-inflammatory activity. Now, it is most effective we've seen in all the studies in pustular psoriasis, hand and foot psoriasis, it works well, and erythrodermic psoriasis. It's indicated for severe plaque type psoriasis in adults. It's once a day dosing. It's safe for long-term use, good maintenance therapy. Efficacy is dose dependent. It's slow. It can take three to six months to really kick in. But studies have shown some improvement at eight weeks. Safety and efficacy in pediatric use are not established. All right, so if you're going to start psoriatain, what do you do? First of all, we get baseline labs, um, and if it's within l- normal limits, we'll start psoriatain at 25 milligrams a day. If there's no improvement after two to three months, you can increase their dose. Um, you want to titrate the dose upward to a maximum of 50 milligrams a day. I will tell you, not a lot of patients can tolerate 50 milligrams of psoriatain a day. It's rough. Um, the highest we've ever We usually use this 25, and a lot of times they can't tolerate the side effects. Ongoing monitoring, we do LFTs, lipid profiles, um, CBC, renal functions, and, and all this is in the little stick you got. All of this stuff is in there, so you don't have to try to write all this down. Now, what about side effects? Remember, drying of the mucous membranes, patients get very dry. Their lips chap. Their inside of their nose gets dry. Their skin can get real sticky. It's like this sticky, sticky feel into it, and they complain about that a lot. Headache, biggest, biggest complaint, in women on sriatane hair loss. Hair loss is a big deal. Uh, they can get aches, decreased night vision, uh, paronychia, and uh, elevated LFTs. Now, if you see elevated LFTs, what you should do is just ask if they're if they're drinking with it. Um, The other thing is is if it's greater than two times normal, we'll decrease the dose and then we'll recheck it in a week or two just to see if it's gone back to normal. And then evaluate for other causes if your liver enzymes are still high, you know, to make sure they don't have hepatitis or something like that. Hyperlipidemia you need to watch for. It occurs in 25 to 50% of the patients. And if it's over 400 milligrams, you probably should start a lipid-lowering agent. Um, if it's over 700, you need to decrease the dose. Um, we don't know why they picked these specific numbers, but this, kind of in all the studies, this is the numbers they pick. so you just kind of want to look at it if it goes above 400. Pseudotumor cerebri, if a patient complains of headache, um, make sure they're not taking any tetracycline drugs. Um, you know, as you can see, this is a cousin of Accutane, so it's kind of got all the side effects of Accutane. Um, Rare skeletal toxicity, remember the big thing with psoriatain, it is a pregnancy category X, you have to be very careful. And then I kind of, I had forgotten the actual wording of pregnancy category X, so I just put the definition down there, which means highly unsafe in pregnancy with the risk of use outweighing the possible benefits. So, remember that a female of childbearing potential, this is probably one of your last choices. You want to go through other things if you can and not use acetretin. If you're going to do this for some reason, you have to get negative pregnancies test prior. You have to counsel, counsel, counsel. The patient cannot and should not get pregnant for three years after taking the last dose of psoriatain. It does stay in the, in the blood. It's stored in the fat. Um, and if you consume alcohol while you're taking the medication, it makes it even a longer period of time that it's stored. So this is a lot of drug. If you're going to use in females, a lot of counseling. We like to use this drug in the elderly patients do well, and also men. Men have no problem with this drug. Um, there is an informed consent, patient consent that psoriatine actually has that you can have the patient sign. Um, it's just really, really, really important that you counsel the patient about pregnancy and this drug. That's probably the most, most, I can't just tell you guys that enough. Otherwise, they do fine on this drug and long-term use is fine and, and most patients don't need a high dose, so the side effects aren't bad. One way we like to use, um, or oh, let me tell you about the hepatotoxicity. It's indicated in liver disease. Sometimes liver enzymes can get elevated, but they're reversible. Um, alcohol consumption during treatment is not recommended. It's not 100% off limits, but it's not recommended, and no nursing mother should take the medication. With all the medicines we're talking about today, remember they all have drug interactions. You need to be very cautious. You need to know the drug interactions know what your patients are taking, and make sure that they're not gonna interact with any of of the drugs. Um, We like to use acetretin with ultraviolet light, okay? And um, what happens is you can get a good clinical response, reduction of side effects, and you can also uh, lower the amount of light treatment that they need. They get better clearance. They get decreased cumulative doses of UV, um, reduced number of treatments, duration of therapy, and reduction or the cessation of the acetretin therapy can be done fairly quickly. Efficacy shows really good. Um, There's two studies written here showing that patients with ultraviolet light, 35% of them uh, got improvement. But if you added in acetretin, it's anywhere between 74 and 79% improvement. So it really bumps that uh, efficacy up there a lot when you combine them together. Um, the total UV dose and minimal erythema dose was reduced by 20% by adding psoriatane in. And then the way you wanna combine this, if a patient is on phototherapy first and you wanna add in acetretin, you need to decrease their phototherapy dose by 50%. one week. Um, after starting acetretin, because you don't wanna burn them, okay? And then um, add acetretin, 10 to 25 milligrams. If we are going to, if a patient's on light therapy and we just need a little little kick, we'll add in 10 milligrams to see what happens. 25 is probably the highest you need to go with this. Um, you wanna gradually increase the acetretin. 25 milligrams is usually optimal, don't need to go higher than that. Now, if the patient is on acetretin first and you wanna add in phototherapy, Um, You have to um, start the acetretin at least two weeks prior to phototherapy. Let them get going on that. You want to add phototherapy at 50% the usual dose that you would start them on, so you have to bring it down. And then it can be tapered or discontinued once clearing uh, occurs. You can stop this abruptly. You don't get any flare afterwards with acetretin. It's very easy to stop. Okay, so let's talk about methotrexate a little bit. Now, methotrexate was approved... By the FDA for psoriasis in 1972, so this has been around a long time, it was approved prior to FDA requirements for clinical trials, so there's no large studies showing efficacy and safety. I guess in 1972, I did not know this until I actually read this, in 1972, they didn't have to do big clinical trials, so that's why you can't find a lot of studies done on monotherapy methotrexate. Um, Indicated for severe recalcitrant psoriasis, it is an immunosuppressant. It does inhibit DNA synthesis and proliferation of lymphoid tissue. It's much less costly than biologics. This is a really good um, thing to do on patients if their insurance is being tough, um, if they're a candidate for methotrexate. If a patient has to pay cash for methotrexate, it's very, very inexpensive. So That's something to remember. Um, recent studies do show that posi-75 can be achieved in 36 to 60% of patients after 16 weeks, so that's kind of a large range there. Now, if you're gonna initiate methotrexate, what do you do if first you wanna make sure you take a good history and physical, inquire about alcohol intake. Um, I always tell my patients, please be honest with me about your alcohol intake, and I tell them, I don't care how much you drink, I just need to know so that I can put you on the right treatment. And a lot of times if you tell them that, you'll get a different answer than if you just say, how much alcohol do you drink? Um, Exposure to hepatitis, personal family history of liver or renal disease. Uh, Remember that people always think methotrexate liver, but remember that methotrexate is actually excreted 85% by the kidney. So you don't wanna start anybody that's got renal issues on this either. Um, make sure they don't have any infectious disease and make sure they're not uh, actively trying to get pregnant or it's possible that they could get pregnant. Baseline labs, of course you wanna check and make sure the patient's healthy. Uh, This is something that is kind of the test dose. This has kind of been a little controversial lately. I was taught how to use methotrexate 15 years ago. So everyone got a test dose, okay? You, you check the patient's labs, you give them a test dose of five milligrams. If, th- if their labs are great, five days after the test dose, you do a CBC. If they have not had any kind of changes in their blood counts, then you're good to start the full 15 milligrams. Well, what people are trying to say now is five milligrams isn't a really good test dose for the patient, because five milligrams isn't going to do anything to them anyway. So a lot of people are actually starting patients on methotrexate without a test dose now, just diving straight in if they're, if they're good. So you can kind of do what you're comfortable with um, on that. If you are going to do a test dose, you want to repeat labs seven days, and you want to look for bone marrow suppression. If normal, start the patient at 15 a week in three doses, 12 hours apart. Um, or a single weekly oral dose. It comes in a couple of different ways. Um, it's available in solution. You can give injection, um, which is the cheapest form. Um, the liquid, you can actually add it into, um, I think it's orange juice and drink it. Um, we, we used to have some patients do that, um, but then they got to where every time they smell orange juice, they wanted to throw up. So we don't do that anymore. Um, But the injection is a good choice if you need something very inexpensive and the patient just for some reason doesn't want to take pills. Okay, so follow-up labs. when You need to follow your patients. Um, We do a CBC every four weeks times three months, and then every one to three months depending on after that. If the patient's really healthy and they're doing great, we do labs every three months. Um, If you change a dose, if you increase the patient's dose, you probably need to check the lab again in a month. LFTs, BUN, creatinine, every two to three months. Make sure you're doing pregnancy tests if they are childbearing potential. Um, this is like psoriatane. This is not something you want to go to, probably first line in, in someone who's wanting to have children. Um, like, right, like my husband and I want to have children in the next three to four months. You probably want to steer away from this. But actually, on this, patients can get pregnant a lot sooner. They can get pregnant three months after the last dose. So it's not as bad as the psoriatine, but still it's a Category X. Maximum dose, 30 milligrams a week. Um, Important to keep track of lifetime-accumulated dose of methotrexate. Now, this has kind of been talked about back and forth in the last few months as well. Used to... You needed to keep track of a cumulative dose of methotrexate from the very first time they ever took methotrexate all the way through their life. Well, now they're saying if a patient has had a liver biopsy, you can actually put that number back at zero. So they kind of start over. The other thing they're talking about is if a patient has been off methotrexate for a year or two, you might be able to reset their number, cumulative number back to zero as well. Um, Pediatric use, it's approved in juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, in general, low-dose weekly methotrexate is well-tolerated, and we do use methotrexate in children. Children are pretty resilient. Um, they do pretty well on methotrexate and uh, cyclosporin as well. And you just have to monitor them just like you do adult patients. Okay, lots and lots of drug interactions with methotrexate. The biggest one being Bactrim okay, um, sulfamethoxazole, trimethprim, Bactrim, Scepter, whatever you call it, severe toxicity. This is a severe, severe toxicity that you will get if they take this together. Make sure your patients know this because you certainly don't want them on methotrexate. You don't want them going to the doctor for a sinus infection and them getting Bactrim, okay. That's going to be an awful deal. Side effects, it's really restricted by the, use of orga, uh, by the uh, risk of organ toxicity, the three primary concerns with methotrexate. Hematologic toxicity, hepatotoxicity, and pulmonary fibrosis. This is kind of risk factors for hematologic tos- toxicity for methotrexate. Um, these are some things that you wanna watch if the patient has this, you wanna really watch, okay, their blood counts. Um, And then you wanna watch liver counts closely if they have any of this, okay? Now, side effects, common side effects. Nausea, they feel yucky, they're tired, especially the day after they take their methotrexate, they just feel run down. Um, Folate supplementation helps this. All the patients that take methotrexate should actually get one milligram of folic acid a day two milligrams on the days they take their methotrexate. They've actually done, they've looked at increasing the folate up to five milligrams a day, and it really doesn't have a lot of uh, benefit to do that, so just one milligram a day. We usually write a prescription for this. Insurance companies will usually cover it. Um, If not, they can just go to Walmart and get it, it's cheap, and they just take it one a day. The folic acid can reduce hematologic, gastrointestinal, and hepatotoxic side effects. Um, bone marrow toxicity is one you need to look for. What you'll, what you'll see is a decreased hematocrit. Um, most serious short-term side effect, you want to check for drug interactions if you all of a sudden see this. Okay. Um, you want to lower the dose, and then if they are having some bone marrow toxicity, you can up their dose of folate to 5 milligrams a day, and it, it can help uh, bring them out of that. Increased liver function test. You always wanna check medication interactions and you wanna ask about alcohol use, you gotta do that. Um, If you need to recheck the liver enzymes, um, you wanna do it five to seven days after the next dose. Remember, you can't really get good lab results. If you have the patient take methotrexate, and you do the lab tests day two, day three, day four, you're not going to get really good results. you got to wait five to seven days after they've taken their dose. Platelets, if you see a drop in the platelet count, you want to repeat the CBC. In um, platelet count in a week, you want to consider decreasing the dose. If the platelets go over 100, 000, under 100,000, you need to stop methotrexate. White blood cells, if there's a drop reduced dose, um, repeat the labs. If the white blood cell count goes too low, you got to discontinue the drug. Pulmonary toxicity. Um, if a patient comes in for their follow-up, you really need to ask them if they've had a cough, a new onset cough that just won't go away. Um, you gotta watch for this. I mean, it's not very common, but it happens, so make sure. If a patient has shortness of breath, a new cough, something like that, you wanna, you wanna do a chest X-ray. Um, if they come to you first, if they've gone to you know the, their, their primary care doctor, internal medicine, make sure that they're, you tell them they need to tell whoever they're seeing that they're on methotrexate and they need to look for that pulmonary fibrosis. Okay, monitoring patients for hepatotoxicity in low-risk patients. Um, this is actually a uh, paper that was put out in 2009 that talks all about methotrexate. It's a great paper if you wanna sit down and read it, and this is kinda what the, um, the paper presented. And then hepatotoxicity in high-risk patient, you have to really, you know, do they really need methotrexate? Is there something else you can go with um, if they have a high risk? Um, Consider, you know, liver biopsy, repeat a liver biopsy, and we'll talk a little bit about liver biopsies because that's been our big controversial topic as well lately. Okay, so here's the results of liver biopsies. When I first started learning to use methotrexate a long time ago. It was standard that if a patient had one to 1.5 cumulative grams of methotrexate, they got a liver biopsy, they just did. We, you know, I worked at, at Baylor Dallas and we had a deal with the liver guy that when a patient came over for a liver biopsy, they knew exactly what to look for and they'd let us know. Well, the rheumatologists weren't really doing liver biopsies, it was the dermatologists that were doing them. So a lot of new guidelines have come out, and now hardly anybody's doing liver biopsies at all. And the first liver biopsy, if you do get one, is usually around three and a half to four total grams now. So that's been changed, I mean, tremendously. If you see any, if you you do have a patient who's either high risk, you think they need a liver biopsy, and you get one, Basically, here's how you interpret it. If it's grade one or two, they can continue to receive methotrexate therapy, that's fine. If it's three A, you wanna continue to receive it, but they may need to repeat liver biopsy. Grade three B to four should not take any further methotrexate. So that's kind of the way that you interpret liver biopsies if you have to get one. But with the new guidelines, you're probably not gonna have to get one uh, anytime soon. And the other thing is with all the new agents that are out and coming out, um, you can put patients on and off methotrexate or you can keep them on a low-dose combination therapy and they may not ever get to that point where they need one. That's a catchy tune. Um, and then here again is the um, evaluation of liver biopsy. And I put this on here because if you'll notice, number one, Normal fatty infiltration, mild nuclear variability, mild portal inflammation. Um, There's been a lot of psoriasis patients that actually have gotten liver biopsies and it's come back as grade one fatty liver. And now we're thinking that it's probably just because they had psoriasis and they have fatty liver that the methotrexate really hasn't been the culprit behind the fatty liver. So a lot of different things looking, looking at now. Methotrexate in pregnancy. Okay, it is a teratogen, okay? And it it can cause a female to abort. So, you wanna be very careful if a patient actually tells you, hey, you know, I am planning pregnancy with my husband. It's an FDA category X contraindicated in women trying to conceive. There has been fetal abnormalities, um, can include cardiac, skeletal, and CNS defects. It can persist in the liver for three months, so that's why you have to tell the patient wait 90 days after they take their last tablet of methotrexate. Women must wait three months after the discontinuation of methotrexate before attempting to conceive, and you have to talk to your male patients as well. If your male patient tells you, hey, I'm trying to get my wife pregnant, you need to let them know that there's been a few studies done, but there are published studies out there Um, on male fertility. And we do know that um, it can cause uh, oligospermia. um, And so either they will not be able to get their wife pregnant or, you know, it may not fertilize it completely. She may have a miscarriage, you know. So there's a lot of things you have to talk about with your male patients as well. Some studies um, have showed oligospermia, but there has been no increases in... um, Abnormal births. There hasn't been any abnormal births in the studies um, on men. Remember that spermatogenesis is 74 days. It is recommended to wait three months to allow methotrexate to be eliminated. So tell your patients, uh, male patients, if they're trying to get their wives pregnant, they need to wait three, uh, three months as well after stopping methotrexate. Now, contraindications, remember, abnormalities in renal function, it's 85% cleared by the renal. Um, Abnormalities in liver function, liver disease, cirrhosis, you gotta be careful giving patients with liver problems. Um, Significant anemia, hepatitis, moderate alcohol consumption, or alcoholism. I think we all know what alcoholism, but you have to use your judgment in the moderate alcohol consumption concomitant use of hepatotoxic drugs, active infectious disease, um, current use of other immunosuppressive agents. You just have to be careful with it. And if a patient is pregnant or breastfeeding, certainly don't want to give it to them. Okay, let's talk about cyclosporine. It was discovered in 1970, and it was shown to be effective for psoriasis in 1979. It's indicated for adult non-immunocompromised patients with severe psoriasis. Remember that cyclosporin was discovered because transplant patients were given the drug and if they had psoriasis, their psoriasis was clearing and everybody was like, hmm, what's happening? So they figured out that it was some way suppressing T-cells and so psoriasis might be linked to T-cells. That's kind of when it all first started coming about. Now, it is an immunosuppressant by inhibiting T-cell activation Um, It inhibits uh, IL-12, okay? Blocks activation of a lot of other different pathways. Very useful in crisis management, very useful. Very rapid clearing of psoriasis with this drug. Erythrodermic patients, great, okay? Um, Dosage is usually two and a half to five milligrams per kilogram per day in two divided doses. Um, We usually start patients that have psoriasis at 3.5 milligrams per kilogram. Remember, it is limited to the US, um, to one year of therapy in the US. Okay, the FDA has only approved it for psoriasis for one year, and that's due to the the problems that it can cause with kidneys, which we'll go through. Um, Posi 75 can be achieved up to 80% in just eight weeks. So it is something that you can actually rescue patients with. If they have severe inflammatory disease, it works great. Or if a patient is flaring for some reason, they have a horrible, Um, infection or something like that that has really flared their psoriasis and then they come in and they've been treated for their infection but their psoriasis looks horrendous you can add in cyclosporine for a little while and get them back under control baseline labs once again um, you want to check everything make sure they're healthy you need to ask about a personal or family history of kidney disease Um, If they're normal, go ahead and start their dose. If you need to titrate them upward, you want to do it at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram uh, per day um, into a maximum dose of five. Now, um, allow four weeks after initiating dose before the increase. Um, There was a National Psoriasis Foundation meeting yesterday where a lot of experts that treat a lot of psoriasis got up and talked about this, and there's... Two ways that you can look at dosing right? I mean a uh, cyclosporin now. Some people say it's that you need to figure it and calculate it on their actual weight, and some people say you need to calculate it on their, the weight that they should be. Well, we started talking about that, and what if you have a 400 pounds person that's supposed to be 140 pounds? If you calculate it at 140 pounds, they're probably not gonna really do well. But if you have to put a patient on a high dose of cyclosporine because they're heavy, you need to really closely watch monitoring blood pressure, all the the side effects that they can get. Okay, dosage ranges you can see here. Ongoing monitoring, Uh, probably most important is blood pressure monitoring by the patient. We tell the patient that when they start cyclosporin, they need to go home and they need to get a blood pressure monitor or they need to decide if they're gonna drive up to the local pharmacy every day for a week. We want their blood pressure every day for a week and then weekly for about a month. And then every time they come into our office for a follow-up, they get a blood pressure check. Um, tell them that it can raise their blood pressure. You wanna tell them to look out for blood, increased blood pressure um, signs like headache, dizziness, um, things like that. Okay, cyclosporine has a ton of drug interactions. This is not the complete list. This list could go on for days and days and days. So make sure that your patients know. What we do in our office is we have a complete list of drugs that interact. We Xerox that and give it to them and tell them that they need to carry it in their wallet. Um, And when they see a doctor, they need to pull it out and they need to say, I cannot have any of these drugs. Here's another list. Okay, lots and lots of things can interfere with cyclosporin. Okay, side effects, most serious is nephrotoxicity, okay, and hypertension. Uh, cyclosporin has vasoconstrictive effects on the renal arteries. So long-term therapy can lead to permanent scarring. That's why the FDA has only approved it for a year. Um, there is an re- increased risk, we know now, for developing squamous cell carcinoma. Um, particularly in patients who have received a lot of light therapy. You can get elevated triglycerides, usually reversible, increased potassium, you want to watch that. They can get a low magnesium, and then hypertrichosis. Okay, tell them about hypertrichosis, and normally it's on the forearms. Patients get an increased increase hair growth on their forearms. Now, nephrotoxic, Okay, if it's used more than two years, it can produ- produce irreversible vasculo vasculopathy and interstitial fibrosis. Okay, so you wanna be careful with it, using it long-term. Patients with a creatinine over 25% of baseline on two occasions, you should decrease their dose. If the creatinine level does not decrease, um, you may wanna think about decreasing their dose again, and then this just may not be a drug that they can tolerate. Hypertension, you wanna watch hypertension. Um, if we always tell patients if the, low, if the bottom number, the diastolic, gets over 90, um, they probably are going to need to go on something to continue the cyclosporin if need be. Um, if they develop hypertension, you can decrease the dose. Um, if they need to be on the higher dose to control them, then you probably wanna go ahead and start them on something. Or, if you're not comfortable with that, send them to their primary care doctor. Let the primary care doctor know that they are on cyclosporin and that they need to have a, a, a help with blood pressure control. Um, calcium channel blockers tend to work best because of the effect on the smooth muscle vasodilation. Now, here's just some definitions and classifications of blood pressure levels. Okay, just keep those in mind, and you might want to give these to your patients just to let them know what they need to look for. It is a pregnancy category C, okay, should be used in pregnancy only if potential benefits outweigh the risk to the fetus. Lower birth weight has been reported in a short, shorter duration of pregnancy. Um, I do know that there has been a lot of babies born with the mom on cyclosporin. So um, just kinda you have to get involved, the OB needs to be involved if you're going to keep a patient on cyclosporin. Um, so just make sure you go over the risk with mom. Appears not to be teratogenic, and there is limited studies in psoriasis patients, but there's a lot of studies in the um, transplant patients. Nursing mothers should not breastfeed. It should not be um, transferred in the breast milk to the baby. And then pediatric use. Um, Transplantation recipients as young as one year have no adverse side effects, uh, safety and efficacy for patients, great, uh, less than 18, has not been established. Um, there's limited literature, but our kids that we have in our office that do cyclosporin do really well. They don't tend to have kidney problems. Their kidney functions look great. Remember that kids can get hypertensive, so you really do need to check their blood pressure and watch them if you're gonna give it to them as a child. Contraindications, um, if they've had a malignancy, um, uncontrolled hypertension, renal insufficiency, if they've had a ton of PUVA treatments, uncontrolled infections, if they've gotten a live vaccination. In elderly, immunodeficient, obese populations, pregnancy, poorly controlled diabetes, these are the things you kind of need to really watch if you're going to give a patient cyclosporin. Now, this is kind of interesting. I just wanted to throw this in there because this was done recently, which um, if you guys get a copy of it and read it, it's great. Um, It's called the Delphi Consensus Approach. And what it was, was they put 15 psoriasis experts in the same room, if you can imagine that. And they gave them all these really tough scenarios. And they gave them all this whole armament of psoriasis treatment and said, how would you treat each one of these patients? And they actually got these guys to agree on things. And it was published, actually, in 2009 in the JAD. And the first choice for people that have anything like this is ultraviolet light. So you wouldn't want to use any systemic therapy. This is what all these psoriasis experts say, first choice. But what was interesting is there is a role for the traditional systemic therapies in some things. A lot of these doctors pick psoriotain or acetretin as their first choice in treating patients that had a history of invasive malignant melanoma, history of malignant melanoma in situ, or a history of a solid tumor malignancy. So if you're running, if you have somebody that's had this, you know, cancer or something and you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about their psoriasis, if you don't want to just use light treatment or let's say they've had a melanoma, squamous cell and you don't want to give them light treatment, you can go on, you can put them on acetretin. Um, The other thing was that they did choose methotrexate as their first choice for a couple of scenarios. Patients who monotherapy with an anti-TNF was discontinued due to toxicity, so they couldn't tolerate the TNF-alpha inhibitors, they said, hey, try methotrexate. And then if a patient has moderate to severe congestive heart failure, you know, you have to watch the TNF-alpha inhibitors with that. And so they said to go ahead and do methotrexate on these patients. So the systemic therapies, even though they're old, the traditional ones, there is a place, and there's still a first-line place for them in some. And if you guys can get a copy of this Delphi exercise, this is not the complete list of what the choices were. It's really good. There's all these scenarios about patients who have HIV, who have hepatitis, who have, you know, just weird things that you might see in the clinic. And then all these doctors actually agree on what you should put them on. And it's really cool to use that as a tool to treat psoriasis patients that have a lot of complications. The other thing, um, clinical experience, challenging scenarios. Uh, One thing that they, it wasn't first line for everyone, but a lot of them agreed that um, you can use psoriatain or acetratin if a patient has HIV or AIDS, um, tuberculosis active or latent, psoriatain might be an okay thing to start with, solid tumor malignancy, or multiple skin cancers. So that's kind of somewhere where you can use uh, good old psoriatain. Psoriatain's gotten a bad rap about you know, all the side effects and it doesn't work great, but you know what? You can use it in first line for some patients who have a lot of issues, so it was really good. So basically the conclusions are psoriasis, remember, is a systemic inflammatory disease. It can be associated with comorbidities. You gotta watch your patients. You gotta make sure they're being monitored. You gotta make sure that they're seeing someone and getting their blood pressure checks, their their liver in check, their cholesterol in check, their diabetes has to be in check, their blood pressure, everything. Um, And traditional systemic therapies still play an important role in the treatment of psoriasis. Even though we all love biologics, use biologics, don't forget about these guys. They work well. I think that's it. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I have a patient who was 27-year-old male, and I didn't put him on suriotame, but somebody did before I got there. And then he and his wife were trying to get pregnant, and issue came up with how long did he have to wait. I actually... Called the pharmacist who thought the literature that she had was a little um, unclear, and we called the company who said males should wait three years before trying to get pregnant on psori- if they're trying to get if their, wives pregnant their on wife psoriatone. pregnant. You know what? I have not heard that at all, and that's, that's interesting that the company would say that. And you know what? I would like to see. I would ask them for the literature on that. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't give any literature, but that was the response from them because it's probably because they didn't know it. what to say. But you know what? Ask them where they get their information, because I have never heard that. And um, it would be interesting to see where they, they got their answer from. Because yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard of it having any problems transferring from males to females. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anything else? In response to her question a few years ago, I had the same scenario. Called a company and their rep at the time said, Not a problem. It's teratogenic, not mutagenic. Yes. Yeah. So you never know where these companies get their answers sometimes. Well, thanks for hanging in there. I hope you guys had a great first conference day, and we'll see you all tomorrow.